0: From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Any free time my wife and I get these days usually comes when our three young kids are in bed, which we try to make happen by 7.30 p.m. every night at the latest. After a few chores, we typically crash into bed and fire up Netflix on my laptop. But we like to mix it up. Some nights, it's Prime Video or Disney Plus or Hulu or Apple TV. I can't say I've thought too deeply about how I'm using my pandemic free time until talking to today's guest, Connor Kelly. Connor is a professor of theology at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the author of a recent book called The Fullness of Free Time, A Theological Account of Leisure and Recreation in the Moral Life, published by Georgetown University Press. He also wrote an article in America Magazine last month headlined, The streaming era ruined our free time. Is it too late to reclaim it? I asked Connor about his scholarship and what our faith could possibly have to say about our free time. Turns out there was lots for me to learn and I hope our conversation helps you pause a moment before crashing in front of your streaming device of choice for the 300th night in a row. We're also releasing a great new spirituality resource Connor put together for us. It's called A Leisure Examine in the spirit of the Jesuit daily prayer practice of reviewing one's day. Use it to reflect on your own free time usage by downloading for free at jesuits.org slash leisure. And thanks for joining us. Connor Kelly, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk to me today. How are you doing? Thanks. I'm doing great. So happy to be here. So uh, I brought you, invited you on to talk a little bit about your recent article in America Magazine and some of the other scholarly work you've done as a theologian around uh, topics connected to free time and work and leisure. And we're going to get into all that uh, in a minute, but maybe first just could tell us a little bit, about yourself and and what you do.
1: I am an assistant professor in the Department of Theology at Marquette University, and I research and teach about how the resources of the Catholic moral tradition can help us make good ethical decisions in our ordinary lives. So I really like to think about just the, the kind of mundane daily stuff we have to decide and see what we might be able to do to do that better and live our faith
0: more fully each day. You use two words in that quick introduction, two words that I often use interchangeably, and I'm not exactly sure how they fit together or how they're different, um, moral and ethical. Yeah. Can you like just do a quick introduction to when you use those words or think about those words, what do you mean?
1: So I'm not always as careful about this as some of my other colleagues might be. But generally, when I think about it, I, in my sort of line of work, the distinction often comes down to moral theology and then theological ethics. And so you can think about moral and ethical kind of playing off that division. And it's not a precise division. It's also not a uniform division, but typically moral theology is understood more as the reflection on kind of how we think about the question of being good generally. Um, like what does it even mean to be good? What's what's the good in life. How does our uh, tradition as Catholics help us understand what we ought to be aiming for? And then theological ethics tends to be a little bit more of the kind of nitty-gritty practical side of that. Like once we've said, okay, here's our vision of the good, here are our basic principles, how do we actually achieve that in specific situations? And so I have a little bit more tendency that personally to kind of think of them interchangeably because I, I actually, one of my tasks is to sort of fight against the idea that ethics is not part of moral theology or that moral theology is so heady that it can't deal with any of the practical stuff. So part of my job is actually to try and bridge these two things. So I I think you're on safe grounds if you want to blend them a little bit.
0: So we're talking on uh, Thursday, January 7th, our show will come out uh, on the 13th. So yesterday was the sixth, which is, which was the, um, you know, the, the kind of crazy news out of uh, DC, just down the road from where I live uh, with the, a violent mob uh, invading the US Capitol building. Uh, so before we get into like this subject matter that we're going to spend most of our time talking about, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, again, mentioning like you spend a lot of time thinking about how our vision of the good or how our tradition like, should lead us to act or then to judge actions and Uh, decide where we want to come down on things um and so just i we didn't really plan for this but i just wondering as a moral theologian kind of looking at this unfold yesterday like what were the things going through your head what what is your like initial reaction i think
1: my first reaction really was far less as a moral theologian and far more as an american and i said to my wife when she got home from work i said i just cannot believe this happened i would never have in in a million years, imagined that I was going to watch scenes of people storming the U S Capitol building. And it really was heartbreaking because of what it means about the lack of faith that we have in our political system and in our entire democratic system of government. So when I kind of then take a step back and think, okay, as a Catholic moral theologian, what sort of things do I think about when I look at this with the resources of the Catholic tradition and The the number one thing I was thinking about is the ways that we have rejected the idea that our political life is for the common good. I think that's representative of just the deep seated divisions that we have now. It's really my party must win, your party must lose, and it's completely zero sum. But the Catholic vision for what government is built on a long tradition of Christian engagement with political life comes down to the idea that it's for the sake of the common good. And that's what we ought to be working towards together. That's what any political party should be seeking. That's what any Catholic and political life ought to be aiming for. And I think we've just lost sight of that. I think we've really focused on who is my team? How do I defeat the other team? And not how are we collectively in this for each other? And if we had a little bit more of that love of neighbor in our political system, and in our political interactions, then I think we'd be able to dial this down before we got to this point. The second thing I would say, uh, Brian Massingale at Fordham had a nice piece in America, kind of his uh, almost immediate reaction to it. And he did a nice job laying out all the ways that there's really a kind of system of white privilege involved in the, the way it unfolded yesterday versus the way that uh, we've seen protests for black lives matter over the summer treated and. Uh, engaging law enforcement and other things. So worth a good read if you want to get a little bit more into the the depths of how Catholicism can help us think through some of what's going on.
0: It does seem to me that the, the common good is maybe some element of Catholic social teaching that has a lot to offer us in this, you know, our very individualistic Libertarian society, as you were mentioning, it's kind of all about me and my team or just me and my own and getting ahead. And that really is kind of, it's almost hard to imagine the common good, like, making any sense at all to a lot of American folks who are just kind of swimming in our uh, individualistic system where freedom means I can do whatever I want, anytime I want. Um so, yeah, have you do you talk about the common good with your like your students? Is that something that uh, resonates with them? This sense of this kind of collective vision? Uh, yeah, what is your take on teaching the common good in the u s?
1: Well, you know, not to make inartful artful segues here, but it is kind of part of what's driven my work on leisure, frankly, is to be thinking about what would it mean for us to approach our ordinary decisions in the United States in particular? as Catholics who come from this tradition that promotes the common good and that says we are all ultimately responsible for each other. We are each other's, you know, I'm my brother's keeper, I really am, and my sister's keeper. And so, I think one of the challenges is that, as you rightly say, we're we're sort of steeped in an alternative frame of reference. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is this sort of vision of atomistic individualism that I think really resonates in the United States. We're all like little atoms. And you can go off and form your own molecules. And that's awesome if you choose to do that. But you would be a great atom without ever coming into contact with another hydrogen or something like that. You would still be perfectly fine. Um, So I guess we're like noble gases. Is that what that one is? I don't know my (laughs) chemistry's real bad. But but I think the whole idea is you're totally self-sufficient. And if you want to create some connections, awesome, do it. But you have no responsibilities to anybody else unless you have created them yourself. And I think the whole point of Catholic theological anthropology, which is to say the way that the Catholic vision of humans being created in the image and likeness of God understands what it means to be human. The entire message of that is that we can't do it alone, that we weren't made to be alone. Just think about Genesis. So what would it look like to take that seriously? And part of what I think is the sort of necessary precondition to be able to do that is to begin to think that way in the like ordinary everyday kinds of decisions that we make. So that when we start to think about, okay, how am I going to vote, which seems like a bigger choice, or when I start to think about how do I write out my plans for my advanced directive or you know something else that just has an immediate moral weight to it, then we're in a place where we've cultivated this perspective and begin to think that way. So I agree, it's really hard, but that's part of why... I want to talk about things like free time that seems so mundane, that seems so almost removed from the moral calculus to be able to say, no, this is a place where we can actually train the habits to see the common good fundamentally.
0: Yeah, I love uh, what you're doing. I was really kind of challenged by your recent article in America. And that is, I think, a pretty good segue to get into what you're focusing on. Again, something that really has a big impact for everyone, thinking about free time, how we spend it, how much we have of it or don't have of it. Um, and so I was happy to kind of get into both that article and your book. So your your book, which came out is it just this past uh in twenty twenty, so this past year. Yeah, back um, in October. Awesome. So yeah, pretty brand new. Uh, congratulations, first of all. It's called The Fullness of Free Time, A Theological Account of Leisure and Recreation in the Moral Life. And then your America piece, which seems you know, connected, certainly, to, to that work. Um, it just came out uh, in December. Uh, the streaming era ruined our free time. Is it too late to reclaim it? Um, and as a devoted Netflix watcher, I felt personally attacked by the headline it <laughs> of was, that It was article. actually meant as a personal attack to my yeah, No, I, I, I know. I, I, I never know. thought of that when I was writing it. Clickbait. That's how you get people <laughs> to read it, to think about how am I going to feel judged by this. But no, I found it like really uh, compelling and made for some interesting uh, reflections. So yeah, let's, let's get into that uh, conversation then uh, about this kind of big emphasis in your work most recently, um, a theological book. accompanying essay and other essays you've written on free time so you said a little bit about why that's a topic you're interested in the idea of kind of taking some of these principles and applying them to everyday life opportunities but why free time in particular what led you to that topic
1: yeah, I think overall, I have this concern about how we ought to be forming ourselves and how as a, I, th- I was trained at Boston College with Jim Keenan, and one of the kind of foremost Jesuit moralists today and a lead thinker in, in virtue ethics. And one of the kind of main ideas of virtue ethics is that we, we form ourselves through our actions, through our choices, and that has moral consequences for our character. And so I tried to kind of take that to heart and say, where can we be forming ourselves more fully? And um, when I was at Boston College, I... Did a dissertation about both work and leisure, sort of two sides of the same coin in some respects. Um, a point we gotta try and dissect a little bit later. But what I was trying to think about is you know, this could go in a lot of different directions. if If I really want to tackle ordinary life, there's a lot of avenues to it. Um, but I kept on finding myself coming back to leisure kind of for two reasons. One is that I think it's really underappreciated. We actually, even within theological discourse, There's not that much written about it. There's not much that goes on. And yet for most of us, it's a reality at least a little bit every day. And so when I began to think about, okay, where are the places where we could be forming ourselves? It seemed like a great place because we don't have any like um, competing claims or moral systems that we're trying to undo. We just have a kind of like blank slate of, I never thought about it that way. So for me, Uh, that was a plus particularly when I was supposed to be writing a dissertation where I'm engaging existing literature and I was like, Hey, there's no literature on this. And so that just kind of covered that chapter right there. But even more fundamentally uh, the kind of seed had been planted in my mind. And I know I've said this in more than one venue, but um, with a conversation I had as an undergrad um, where we were kind of approaching fall break, most of my friends were seniors about to graduate and I wanted us to be able to hang out, kind of have a grand memory before everybody scatters to the winds. And so, I was talking with a group of my friends about going down to Kentucky, renting a cabin in the woods and just having a a week to sort of spend some time together, go hiking. I think we ended up going canoeing, all the kinds of stuff one does. And when I approached one of my friends, a really thoughtful friend, I said, yeah, this, this is what I'm thinking, would you like to join? And she was like, well, I mean, yeah, of course, I'd like to join. But I just don't think it's really an appropriate use of our time. We're going to be like traveling off in the woods when we could be doing a fall break service trip, or we could be volunteering here. And, um, obviously, you know, as much as you were offended by my calling you out in your Netflix habits, you know, imagine that conversation from my end of like, Hey, listen, I've just, uh, dumped a whole bunch of money into this Airbnb. Of course it wasn't an Airbnb at the time. And I want to know if you'd like to, to pitch in and she's like, yeah, that's fundamentally a waste of time and money. Um, <laughs> Have you not thought about people starving? And so I took that to heart and said, I will obviously go on to get graduate degrees in theology to see if I can rationalize my trip to the Daniel Bloom National Forest while you are volunteering. And the result of that process, after, gosh, about 10 years, uh, was a book where I say, hey, you know what? There actually is great theological value to free time. And This is why I wasn't entirely wrong to organize that trip when I could have been volunteering.
0: Sure. So I think there then, like, maybe we could talk a little bit about what you mean by free time. So I see you have a week where you don't have school, right? So in that scenario, it's like, let's figure it out. So like, could free time mean, you know, that type of volunteering, that service, that more noble minded thing, or is that like a way to use free time or like when you you talk about free time, do you mean just like going into the woods, kind of disengaging, like not doing anything that is all that helpful to anyone. So, yeah, what just, yeah. just talk me through that a little bit. Listen, first of all, I'm still a little bit
1: offended that you're buying into this narrative that me going off to the Daniel Boone National Forest with my friends was not helpful to anyone. <laughs> but um, setting that aside, what I would say is that I would think about free time as the kind of time we have to, at our discretion. So discretionary time is sometimes how it's captured. And And what I really mean is time when we're not at work, or not required to fulfill another set of responsibilities. So as a parent, there is much less free time um, because I have children who demand care and attention. And some of what we do together is using our free time. I don't mean to say it's all work, but there are real responsibilities there. And I think free time is a moment where you can set aside some of those responsibilities. You're not immediately at the demands of someone else or something else, your job or something like that. Um, so time apart from work, but as work is conceived in the Catholic tradition to include more than just your paid employment, the, the also kind of like relational responsibilities that you have.
0: So I'm just thinking about, you know, this is a topic, I think that you you might hear talked about or like in like a pop psychology setting or on social media people talking about how do you how do you do this? Obviously, like there have been so many different like sociological articles and pop sociology articles about like using our smartphones and how that does to our relationships and our time. I'm just curious specifically from like a theological perspective, like as you started to explore this, like starting with that question, what am I supposed to do with my time? What are we supposed to do as people who take the demands of our faith seriously. Uh, what did you find? What did you learn? Like where like did free time and the work you do in theology like, come together? Yeah.
1: So what I first kind of found was all right, how do I address that my friend's concern that I could be do something better with my time, in essence? And what I kind of came down to is, well, there's a value in something like self-care, if you will. And This, I think, was kind of what I described rather poorly in my uh, failed attempts to respond to her challenge. But what I was basically saying was, look, in her case, you do a lot of wonderful stuff here at this university. You do a lot of wonderful things for people. I think she was an RA. You um, volunteer in this community. And if you were to take some of this time with your friends, you could come back here after fall break and be kind of renewed to do that, renewed to do your schoolwork. You'd have the energy and the kind of excitement to be able to get back to work in a way. And I think there's a strong undercurrent of that understanding of free time in Catholic social teaching. So, you would look even in like Rerum Navarum, the kind of first papal encyclical that's in this Catholic social teaching tradition, and you would see Pope Leo talking about how every worker has a right to rest because work takes a toll on its body, which is certainly true for workers in factories and in fields in the late 19th century, and even today. And it's important to have some time so that you can kind of turn your mind to spiritual things. And so, he would and Reverend varram talks about the importance of having Sunday off from work for workers so they can go to mass and participate in their spiritual well-being. And so, I, I kind of extended that and said, yeah, there's a value to what I might call recreation, that we can use our free time as a chance to kind of recreate ourselves so that we're renewed both bodily, spiritually, mentally, to be able to do the work that we need to do. And, and I again, in the Catholic social tradition, work is kind of understood broadly, but also has this element of service to it, that whether it's paid employment, whether it's the work you do in your family, it is for the benefit of others and for the benefit of the common good. And so to be able to do that well, we need to take rest and that's important. So that was kind of my initial theological vantage point. Um, and I mentioned this when I was in graduate school to some of my colleagues, and I was kind of talking about what my project was. And, and one of my friends said to me, "Yeah, but you know what? You've basically just reduced free time to its utilitarian value, and there's really no no value to it whatsoever. I mean, is it really that valuable? It's it's like, yeah, we can justify free time so that you can be a better worker. And <laughs> you know, I guess my my story into this book is really just a series of being deflated. Um, first, <laughs> hey, let's go to the Daniel Boone National Forest hey, look, I've got this great vision for the theology of free time. Actually, that's just a utilitarian argument for why free time's valuable in terms of economics. And I was like, ah. So then I was doing some more research and I found um, really interesting parallels between what psychologists talk about as optimal experiences, which are often the kinds of things that we find in free time because it's games that help us have this where you kind of feel like fully engaged in an activity. And so the way they would talk about that, on the one hand, and the way that Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and other thinkers in the Catholic tradition talk about heavenly rest. And so there's this interesting kind of parallel. My first thought was like, yeah, rest on the Sabbath, that's important. So let's make a kind of argument for free time on that. And then it was, well, what about heavenly rest? And how can we make an argument based on that? And this gets a little bit more into the, this is not just for somebody else or for something else, Um, back to your claims about how I was wasting all of my time in Kentucky, But what I think there's a way to say we can actually value free time or certain types of free time experiences as goods in themselves, as an intrinsic good, if we see it as an opportunity to experience exactly what we hope to experience with God in heaven. And so from a theological perspective, free time in certain ways, and this is what I call leisure in the book as distinct from recreation, is a little bit of a glimpse of heaven and for us as a reminder of what we hope in our spiritual future is actually a
0: really good thing and a really important thing so i guess that brings me to like sitting and watching tv right so you're right you talk about this in your article uh for america just kind of how streaming the streaming era kind of ruining our ability to have leisure or leisure that is good for something besides just like refreshing us, but actually providing us with a, you know, maybe a divine glimpse or some, something that is a foretaste of heaven in some ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's just such a temptation around us to like, to do those types of things that even things I know are like a waste of time or like not good leisure not unplugging. I'm not getting out into nature or not connecting with music or with other people. Like I'm just like vegging because I need this. Um, yeah so like is there space for that uh for you how do you even in your own life like find the energy and time to kind of pursue free time things that aren't just like straight vegging i feel like i have no energy yeah. for anything else
1: yeah the deflation continues because there's nothing like writing a book as an ethicist uh to remind you how much of a hypocrite you really are and <laughs> that has definitely been a constant challenge for me um i would say first what i think generally uh for the book and then i'll try and articulate how i've failed to live up to that so the theoretical (laughs) corrective here is to say it's not like we should only be using our free time for leisure Um, there is a legitimate space and a legitimate good in recreation in this kind of vegging out in this i just need to rest so that i can recover from all that's been going on and that's appropriate And I think that's really good. Um, But if you compare what recreation might do for us in terms of this kind of self-restoration and what leisure can do for us in terms of this glimpse of heaven, it's kind of a no-brainer in some ways, at least from a theological perspective. We ought to be able to say, yeah, it's actually more valuable to have this glimpse of heaven, to have this moment of kind of peace in activity and experience what God is promising us. So... The challenge then is to say, well, like how do I actually get at least some of that? And the way that I've kind of framed it in the book is to say, it's not just anytime you have free time, always choose the leisure option, but it's more, let's make sure we're at least choosing leisure options some of the time. And what I propose is something that I describe as kind of like uh, a leisure examine. So like, what if every week you kind of look back and you say, all right, have I really been able to find moments of genuine leisure where I could be kind of fully present to my activity or fully present to the people around me, to my relationships, in my free time, and not just used it for recreation. And that, I think, sets the bar at a slightly more attainable level. Um, I also talk about, based on this kind of idea from Thomas Aquinas and even Augustine, of the ordering of love, like there's certain, um, you know, we're supposed to love God, we're supposed to love ourselves, we're supposed to love our neighbors, but there are is a kind of priority to that. We ought to love God first. And then Aquinas would say, we should love our, ourself, at least in our spiritual needs. And then we should love our neighbors. And then when we gets to our neighbors, like you've got family members whom you love differently and, and should rightly love differently than someone you don't know who's a distant neighbor from wherever. And I kind of follow that to say, well, what if we think about leisure time with a kind of ordering of time for God, time for self, time for others, with a genuine form of leisure in each case? and what i try and ask myself is like am i making time for god and in being present to god and not just sort of going through the motions am i making time for my wife and am i making some time for myself and in time for my kids so that it, that is actually leisurely where i can be with them and not thinking okay we're here we're doing this thing but i'm going to check my email and my phone to make sure that i'm caught up at work or we're going to be distracted by this other thing um and then if I'm doing that with some consistency, th- then I don't worry about, am I using my other leisure time for recreational purposes?
0: The leisure examine. That's good for a Jesuit podcast, you know? It's a I good know. Application. We got to write that up. You got you to turn that into like a, a real thing. We'll publish full that. Meditation. I can yeah, do that. exactly. Yeah, no, that, that'd, be that'd be great. Um, so like then in that kind of schema, like the, the sense of like prayer, whether it's your own personal prayer or like liturgical prayer, that would be a form of leisure then? Practice yeah, right? I think
1: that there's a lot of ways that, liturgy is supposed to be a kind of leisurely experience for us that it's supposed to be a time apart from the demands of other things that are going on so that we can be present to god and yeah that's a kind of communal form but also a form with god so i have to think about that as a part of my
0: leisure examine sure i want to talk about work which is the flip side to leisure and free time and you've mentioned it a little bit but um yeah to have time that is free means that we have time that is not free and stuff that you know, the obligations we have, whether that's, again, as you were saying, work and like paid employment or responsibilities to our families or other communities. Um, so, yeah, could you talk a little bit about uh, how you see work from, in a Catholic context? You've made a few mentions of it. I know it's something that has a really rich tradition of being kind of thought about um, in Catholic settings. So just like a crash course in, you know, the d- dignity of work and rights of workers in a Catholic context and, and how that fits into your your um, your reflections.
1: Yeah, so the kind of quick version of the theology of work, which, as you say, quite rightly, is very rich in the Catholic tradition. uh, Pardon me, particularly in the last uh, 100 years with uh, the writings of the Catholic social encyclicals. But fundamentally, work is dignified because it's the work of human beings made by God, made in the image and likeness of God, given this responsibility in Genesis to have dominion, uh, which is kind of like a stewardship to to take God's place in a way for the way the world unfolds. And that to me means that we have a sort of vocational calling to use our work as a form of self-gift. So the kind of purpose of a human life, I would say, in the Catholic tradition, again, these ideas of Catholic theological anthropology comes down to the idea that, as Gaudium at best would put it, the human being is only fully alive by in a sincere gift of self. Um, so, work is a great opportunity for us to give of ourselves for those around us, for our communities, for our world. And I think about work in in that sense as a kind of vocation, a calling to use our own talents in ways that can improve what is around us. And because work is so valuable by virtue of the human who is doing this work and is being fulfilled in it, Catholic social teaching talks about the importance of just remuneration for work, just wages, people being given enough to live on, to support their basic needs. And that's kind of understood as a, as a minimum wage floor, if you will, and not as a just, well, look, you've got to do certain kinds of work to prove to me that you deserve enough money to go out and buy your, milk and cereal or whatever. Um, It's no, everybody as human beings needs that and needs that to be able to work. And everybody has both a right and and an obligation to work really in the Catholic tradition because of this contribution to the the common good and the, the project that we all share together. So given all of that and it's great dignity, there is a real importance to the kind of recreation side to be able to say, how do we help ourselves as workers and that's not just the economic work, but as people who are working for the kingdom in a way, how do we help ourselves acknowledge our finitude and get to a place where we can wake up the next day and do what we need to do to advance the work of God. And that's where I think some of the, the recreation, some of the vegging
0: comes in. Yeah. I think the, the reality of our relationship to work in the U.S. Is, is broken in so many ways, right? does not live up to that, you no, know, the, of uh, us being, you know, co-creating with God, serving the common good, um, that we we had, I think, a lot of different things that are, are wrong with our relationship to work, including, like, the, the overwork and, like, if you're not busy, then you're not doing something right and working all the time and checking my email on my cell phone while I'm with my kids, like, that hits home for me, certainly. Um, that kind of work, work, work all the time thing. Uh, and then also, like, on the other end, people who don't have enough work, and who are underemployed or unemployed or who don't make enough to support their families and so don't have time for uh, leisure or because they're working two or three jobs. Um, So do you get into kind of these kind of broken relationships with work that we have and how would you characterize them and what might be some ways to address them?
1: Yeah, I think we can understand kind of a broken relationship in two directions. And so in one direction, I would say that we have kind of broken structures around work and the way that we work. And the prime example would be this question about wages and how we pay people for their work. And I think that our kind of vision of it is, well, prove that I ought to pay you more money before I would consider giving you a raise or something like that. And the Catholic understanding, as I was alluding to, is really everybody deserves the chance to meet their basic needs from their work. And so one of the chapters in the book really talks about the value of the living wage in the Catholic tradition and how that can address some of these structural inequities. Because if we had living wages by a 40-hour work week or something like that, then you actually have time where you can recover with recreation and then feel refreshed enough to think about the leisure side of it. And I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that there are, because of work and because of the nature of work, particularly in the United States an awful lot of constraints that prevent people from the kind of leisure ideal that I talk about in this book. And I I think it'd be irresponsible, if not outright immoral, to be talking about this grand vision without acknowledging that reality and without highlighting the importance of doing something about that. And so a significant portion of the book is really asking, all right, what are the structures that are constraining people's opportunities to live up to this kind of idealized vision of leisure and also of recreation? And what would it mean to try and tackle those head-on? What would it mean to try and intervene? So supporting living wages as a minimum wage is one example. The other side of it that you, I think, allude to here too is, well, how about the ways we think about work? And I think this gets back to the, the atomized individual. It also gets back to the kind of economic utility because we have a hard time as people in the United States in particular, conceiving of value and of anybody or anything having real worth, unless we can cash it out, unless you can demonstrate what it is to the last cent, then what does it even mean? And part of why I thought it was so important to be able to articulate a non-utilitarian value to something or some aspect of free time was to try and break us from that mold, was to try and get us to a place where we could say, like, I'm not busy right now, I'm not doing something that's going to generate some economic productivity or something else. And yet, it still actually is valuable because I think that's what Catholics want to be able to say. You know, what's the worth of a human being? It's not about any number that you put on a spreadsheet. It's really fundamentally about the fact that this is a soul in front of us, embodied, given life by God and sustained by God. and that's a wonderful gift and we need some way to be able to appreciate that and think about value in those terms. And that hopefully starts to chip away at some of the negative things that we have or the negative associations or the, the incomplete picture that we get when we just think about work as the kind of be all end all of our existence
0: yeah I, the work is the be all and end all so like for me that's there's a tension i've been sitting with for you know i guess a number of months now thinking about on one hand the dignity of work the right and responsibility to work to participate uh and this kind of sacred thing while also then thinking about like the over reliance or the kind of obsession with work and the, the thought if you're not working then you shouldn't be supported by the government because you need to get out there and work. Um, I had on the show John Malesic, who's a, another theologian who's written about this. Uh, his book's coming out, I think about burnout and has written a lot about like maybe like not everyone needs to work. If we don't have to again use that as the measure of value and maybe something like a universal basic income as opposed to just a minimum wage, but something that would guarantee people even if they couldn't work. And we often see people who are not working. It's not because they don't want to work, but because like they have some disability or some you know family care they have to take care of. Well, they can't find a job. I mean, that's, find a that's job. the structural aspect of this too. Exactly. So that like, so do you feel that tension at all between like, oh, like work is a sacred, great, good thing, and it's also something that like we put too much emphasis on, and like maybe should dial back in terms of uh, how important we think it is.
1: Yeah, I think that Jonathan Molezak is really good about kind of calling out. Catholic theology around work for the ways that it can potentially idealize work. And I think there are a lot of resources in the Catholic theology of work that would counteract that tendency, but I can also see how this vision of work as this opportunity to live into our vocation as this chance to sort of fulfill our obligations to be co-creators with God, all of that. that's a pretty high bar for work which as Jonathan Melissa does a very nice job of drawing out is not often how we work in the United States in particular. There are plenty of jobs that are just not fun jobs that just have to be done. And I think that one of the challenges is to both recognize the reality of what work looks like. So let's be honest about the fact that work is not always this richly rewarding thing. And that if you happen to find your job rewarding, that you're probably in the minority and You know, I generally find my job to be pretty rewarding as a person who gets to think about interesting things and write about them and teach students and help them wrestle with challenging issues. All of those things are wonderful, Um, but there are plenty of aspects of the job that are not great. And I think acknowledging both sides of that coin and thinking about how there's still a value, there's still something to be offered from the kind of opportunity for self-gift that it presents, rather than from the... I don't know, next line on the CV that it adds or something like that. That to me is a way of say, of putting work in its right perspective and, and putting it in its place.
0: So we've both mentioned that we have kids, uh, young kids. Um, and that to me, I feel like when I'm at my job, at my work, quote unquote, like it's more relaxing for me than when I am you know, chasing them around or trying to make sure they're entertained or fed or not screaming at each other um so like how do you think about parenting fitting into all this and uh you know you you have a you know a a wife who also has a job so do I like figuring out how we do that together sometimes it feels like parenting again is work I know John Malesic has written about no it's probably not we shouldn't think of it as work you know uh it's different than work um yeah what do you come how do you think about your parenting like do you think of it as as work Uh, how do you approach it I tend to find that it's a
1: Curious blend of work and leisure at the same time. Um, And I was thinking about this um, not that long ago because somebody kind of posed the question about the book and, and the parenting aspect. And I said, well, let me put it to you this way. I think there are moments where I am with my kids and I need to be with them. I need to be there keeping them alive, which with two young children sometimes want to attack each other. It gets more and more difficult every day. And that's a that's a really active job, honestly. So I appreciate Jonathan's concerns about calling it work. Um, but I also want to just concede that there's work involved. It's just, that's just how I see it sometimes. That's how, certainly how it feels. There's an obligation element to it. Um, but the fact that I need to be with my kids and have certain things that I need to do for them in the moment does not mean that it dictates exactly what we're going to do together. And that's what I often try and think about when I'm with them, particularly if it's, you know, weekend where my wife is working for, for instance, and I have them for the whole day and it's not like I need to get them to a particular activity or something like that. It's just, we've got this huge blank slate. It can really be work if it's about, all right, every single moment I need to kind of figure out how to keep you alive. But when it turns into, all right, what can we do together? What kind of activities can we come up with? What's the, random thing to do today. Let's go have a bike ride. Let's. uh, There was one time where we got trapped inside and we like made little stick figure puppets or something. And that was much more of the leisure experience because we could become immersed in the activity. We could become just focused on our time together and didn't have to think about, okay, how is this going to be done? How is that going to be done? It was really one thing at a time. And that for me is where you can kind of take what could be work and begin to take some ownership of it and actually transform it a little bit more into the leisure that comes from the free time. Because what might we do to sort of chip away at some of that um, relative imbalance in the cost and make some of the things that are much more enriching a little bit easier to attain. And, you know, this could be things like, if we're going to think broadly about administrations, what sort of support are we offering for parks and recreation? What sort of things are we offering for museums and, other places that are actually shared public goods that we can enjoy in our free time and put us into contact with other people. And obviously, I don't know if you've heard there's a pandemic going on, so it makes it a little bit more challenging to have these interactions in these spaces, but this is not going to last forever. And what we've done is kind of privatize our free time in a lot of ways. And what I would like to see us do is put a little bit more effort into creating the infrastructure, for collective spaces, collective goods, where
0: we can enjoy our free time together. So what to you would be like the big difference? What would make going say to a museum better than me streaming a show that's really artistically made? We're in the golden age of television, right? It's like, it's an art form, right? TV is an art form now. Um, Watching a show and then like talking about it online with people who also like it and like finding, pulling things out of it, you know, doing some cultural criticism around it or whatever. Um, Yeah, so why is one better than the other? Isn't there, could there be some good in engaging with an artistic thing like a TV show and then talking about it somehow, even if it's online?
1: Yeah, absolutely, there can be. And I think that what you're getting at is how how do we use these opportunities for recreation? in ways that might be relationally fulfilling. And that's essentially what I'm trying to push with the book, which is to say, how do we use our free time to be flourishing in our relationships, to be um, connected? And for that purpose, I, for the most part, try and shy away from a kind of wholesale condemnation of a particular medium or a particular activity, because I think there are often lots of ways that can be used. Some lend themselves to that more easily than others. So if you're at a museum and you're looking at a, Piece of art and you turn and there's somebody next to you looking at the same thing, you know, you're not necessarily going to say something to them, but you would at least have to acknowledge that they're there and you might actually get a conversation going with somebody that you didn't know. And that's much different than if you are, let's say in this pandemic, looking at the virtual exhibit for the same museum. So there is something about having that shared space and being able to engage in that shared fashion. Now, if you're talking about watching a show, I want to say there's a difference between watching a show closing your laptop and going to bed and watching a show and engaging in a, an online chat with somebody or having a Zoom call with one of your friends who was also watching it or when the time allows, having people over for dinner to watch a show and then chat about it, and, which you really can do, as you point out, with the kind of golden age of TV that we have now. There's really interesting storylines and, and thought-provoking challenges. And uh, I think what's significant and valuable is what we do with that. And so that becomes important. And, and that's part of what I want to push is like, how could we do that in ways that are more engaging? But we then also have to think about how certain things are more, uh, make that more difficult, make that collective engagement, that kind of social aspect of it potentially more challenging. And I see this with my wife and I when we will watch a TV show. We're watching the same show, and, and sometimes we'll talk about it. Let's say, we watched a show, it was interesting, and maybe we finish an episode and we'll talk about it for like five minutes. Um, and that's a good conversation. It's really interesting and we, and we get somewhere with that, but we could have just sat down and talked for 30 minutes and that probably would have been more enriching and more engaging and more relationally fulfilling because it's different than when you're sitting side by side and just looking at a screen. So it's not to say you can't use it. Um, and I, I do think it's important to ask, how can we pursue our relationships with these things that we do, but there also are obstacles built in for certain
0: things. Well, Connor, I really want to keep going and talk about like sports and uh, all kinds of other fun things you you write about in your book. Um, Getting into some more Augustine and Aquinas and the encyclicals sounds like a lot of fun to me, Uh, but we have to let you go. Uh, but maybe we can come on for a sequel sometime. We can uh, dig into some of those other things. I really in, enjoyed this and be, uh, be thinking about this as I go to fire up uh, Netflix inevitably in a few hours. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll pause and can think about that. But I think also like, uh, in addition to some of those own questions, I love the way you're able to bring those big big social questions and the kind of personal virtue everyday decision questions together and kind of bring them together for us to talk about. And um, yeah, that's uh, super interesting and, and helpful. Uh, so again, the book is called the fullness of free time, a theological account of leisure and recreation in the moral life. We will link to that in the show notes in addition to your America story. So, uh, Connor Kelly, thanks so much for, for taking the time and for, a really thought provoking conversation.
1: Thanks, thanks so much for having me here. And it was great to chat and think more about free time and how we can use that as a chance to cultivate our character.
0: I think podcasts, that's what people should do. just more I and more agree. Fact. more and more podcasts. <laughs> no,
1: no question about it, especially MDG
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, d c. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.